So we do have a lot of ground to cover this morning as we get into God's word, as you have heard. And uh, we're going to be in 1 John 4, so if you haven't already, grab your Bible and turn to that, uh, verses 7 through 21. We're going to be jumping all around through that text today. We're going to go this way and that way, from this thing to that thing. Um, But God has a good word for us in his word today, and I'm encouraged to be able to share it with you this morning. So are we good? Are you ready? You settled in? You prepared? All right. It's not going to be that bad. Come on now. It's going to be good. Okay, so 1 John 4, 7 is where we start. This is the 10th week, by the way, in our series going through this book. Uh, We're coming into the home stretch here, and God has just laid a whole bunch of stuff out before us for us to do and to work on. So that'll be our our thing for the next, oh, I don't know, rest of our lives to do this. So what we're going to see first in this first section of 1 John 4 is a foundational, fundamental, critically important truth about God. Have I stressed the importance of it to you enough? Okay. It starts out by saying, Beloved, let us love one another. If you've been following along in this series, you'll know that that has come up. That's like the umpteenth time we've heard that phrase, right? And you might say, why is that so important? Why do we keep talking about that? Why is it here yet again? Well, we get a little bit of a clue this week. Because it says, let us love one another for love is from God. Love is from God. That means God is the giver and the sender and the ultimate picture of love. Love originated with him. Love comes from him. Uh, Love is found in him. Love is defined by God. Love is from God. Now, this is telling us because love is from God, we ought to love as well. Because if it's something that is part of the character of God or the nature of God or it's a gift from God or something that comes from God, we ought to see that embodied in our lives as well. So far, so good? Okay. One of you thinks it's good. Okay. Um, Let us love one another for love is from God. And it says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, the natural byproduct of being born of God, being born again, is love, the byproduct. Now, what this is not saying is that the way that you get saved, the way that you get born again, is to demonstrate some sort of love in your life. Oh, whoever loves knows God and is born of God. That means if I, if I demonstrate some kind of love, oh, I'm, I, I'm a loving person, I must know God. I'm good to go. Check. That's not what that's saying. It's also not saying that Anybody who shows any kind of love is right with God or whatever because that logic doesn't make sense because what if that love that you think you're showing or embodying isn't actually love? What if it's not how God would define love? What if the love you think you're showing and the loving person you are is actually something that's displeasing to God? Like surely this isn't telling us all you need to do to be right with God and to know God is to show some kind of love that might be displeasing to God and that means you're all good with God. doesn't make any sense, right? So this verse is saying something else. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To get a little clarity on that, I would remind you that John, who's writing this book, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people that are already saved. He's writing to people that are already born of, or have been born again. And so in that verse, verse 7, he's not telling us, here's how you get saved. He's saying, since you're saved, since you know God, since you're born of God, you ought to see love in your life. That's what he's saying. Now, conversely, 
He says in verse 8, anybody who does not love does not know God. So if you claim to be a Christian, but love is not something seen in your life, there's something amiss there. There's something wrong there. Well, why is that, Braden? Well, it says very clearly right here, because God is love. I want you to turn to your neighbor today and tell them God is love. You got to tell them because they might not have heard that before, right? So you have, you have responsibility here. God is love. That is a massively packed and important statement, just so you know. God is love. We saw before that love comes from God, and now here it's God is love. It's not just something that he does. It's not just something that he shows. It's something that he is. God is love. It's part of his nature. It's part of his essence. It's part of what makes him who he is. It's part of what makes him so amazing. God is love. Now, if we're going to understand that claim, that, that phrase, that truth that God is love, we have to have a question answered for us. The question is this, what is love? There's a song about that. Somebody's singing it back there. What is love? We're not going to sing it anymore. <laughs> anyway, but seriously, we need clarity on that because if we just take that to mean whatever we want that to mean, oh, love is this, love is that, we could have a million different definitions of what love is. And if we want to get clarity on who God is, we've got to come to a common ground there. God is love. Now that word love, that particular occurrence of the word love in the scriptures, because the scriptures use the word love in different ways too, right? There's brotherly love, there's romantic love. This usage of love right here comes from a Greek word, and it's a Greek word I'm pretty sure you've heard before. It's the word agape. Agape. Somebody say agape. Agape love has been called the highest form of love, the most virtuous kind of love. So that's no surprise then that that's the kind of love that our God is. And I want to tell you six things about agape love to help us understand it a little better. Number one, agape love is pure. It's pure. With agape love, there's no deceit. There's no hidden agenda. You know how sometimes we are, oh, I'm showing you love, but the real reason is because whatever. That's not agape love. There's no, it's not based on what will that person give to me in return if I show them love. It's not based on does that person deserve my love or not. Agape love is pure. It's pure. Number two, agape love is selfless. So it's not based on or housed in self. It's not about us being prideful. It's not about us elevating our situation and elevating ourselves. It's not, it's not primarily inward focused, excuse me. Agape love also has an outward focus to it as well. Number three, agape love is genuinely wanting the very best for somebody else. Genuinely wanting the very best, wanting good for somebody. Because here's what happens to us sometimes. Sometimes we do want good for people, especially the people that we like, right? But even so, if we were going to be very honest, and you don't have to say anything, don't worry, but if we were going to be super honest, my guess is that all of us would resonate to the, situ the scenario of something good happened to that person, and I got jealous of them. Okay, maybe it's just me. I don't know. That's happened to me. 
Even if you've got plenty of good coming your way, when something really good happens to somebody else, sometimes that little twinge of jealousy comes in. Well, that's not agape love. That's not what happens with agape love. It's genuinely wanting the very best for someone, and when they get it or come into it, you rejoice with them. That's what it is. Number four, agape love is sacrificial. It involves sacrifice. You might have to give something up in order for somebody else to get something good. And you might not ever get back what you gave up. You, you, you just give it with no expectation of even getting it back. It's not like a loan. You just give it. It's sacrificial. Number five, agape love is a willful choice. It's a choice. We've talked about this a little bit. Love is not just some feeling. It's not even just primarily an attitude. It's not some phrase you'd see in a greeting card. It is the, here's how we phrased it a few weeks ago. Agape love is the intentional choice to desire and do good for somebody else. You desire good and you do good. Number six, agape love is expressed in action. So again, it's not just something internal, something housed in here. It, it, it finds its, its expression externally. And God is a good example of that one, by the way. God is always expressing his agape love to us. For instance, God is good to us. Somebody in the house testified to the fact that God is good. Amen? Yes, God is good. So that's an expression of his love. God gives good gifts to us. You might remember in his word it says every good and perfect gift comes from above. A.K.A. every good thing that you have in your life comes from the hand of God. That's an expression of his love. God is patient with us. That's part of his goodness. Here's my really pastoral, encouraging, offensive way of rephrasing that one. Sometimes we're pretty thick. Sometimes we're pretty slow to do the right thing and we're pretty slow to stop doing the wrong thing. Sometimes, sometimes we're pretty dumb, okay? At least the guy that I see in the mirror is. And God is patient though. He doesn't just throw his hands in the air. He has grace for us. He's patient with us. That's an expression of his love. God is, God is also, uh, he makes good promises to us and he's faithful to us. All of these things are expressions of his love. And in all of that stuff that we've just covered on agape love, that's the kind of love that God not only shows, it's not just a costume he puts on, that's the kind of love that he is, part of his character. Say it again, God is love. And now when we continue into the next couple of verses, we're gonna see what is the single most important ultimate example of God's love in action. Verse nine says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Made manifest just means it's been revealed. We can see it now. It's, it's, it's been made obvious to us, shown to us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You remember the, the phrase I've been using this whole series is this, God has a life for you. God has a life for you. He wants us to live. He has something in mind for us. And that life is only possible because he sent his son into the world as an act of love. And he continues by saying, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that God showed his love to us because we were doing so awesome. We were loving him so perfectly that he was compelled to give us a reward, right? That doesn't sound like my life at all. Pretty sure it's not yours either. In this, the love of God, it's not that we loved him, but he loved us. And you remember we talked about agape love. We said it's sacrificial. That word propitiation literally means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. God sending his son into the world was sacrificial, love. We said that agape love is selfless. It wants the best for others. Well, God sending his son into the world was a very selfless act, and it was for our good, and it was on his dime. So if you want to know and start to understand the love of God, that's where we begin. That's the ultimate example we can look to. Ready for the story? Here's the story. We were made by God and for God. Your life has a purpose and a meaning. You're not here by accident. You were made by God and for God. But we have shanghaied the plan. We have gotten ourselves off track with the plan, offside with God. We have all sinned against God, every one of us. We have done things to um, get, uh, go against God and rebel against God and to, to not do the right thing in his sight, and we've distanced ourselves from him. We've actually declared war on him. We've made ourselves enemies of God and put ourselves far offside with God because of our sin. Sin separates us from God, and the result of sin is death and condemnation and wrath. That is not a life, friends. That is not a life. But that's the scenario that all of us go into because we've all sinned. But God loves you. God loves us. And he looks at our situation and he says, I don't want it to have to be that way. Because we can't work our way out of that situation. We can't work our way out of our sin problem. Somebody has to help us. And God helps us. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus came and he lived a perfect, sinless life. That's the life that we have not lived. And Jesus died on a cross in our place for our sins not his own sins he didn't have any sins he died for our sins and on the cross he took on the full weight of God's wrath for us for you for me he paid it all for us Jesus died and was buried but on the third day he rose in victory triumphantly and he proved that he is greater that he has overcome the grave he is greater than the power of sin and Satan and death Jesus is greater God wins and so now each of us has the opportunity to choose Jesus to accept the sacrifice that he made on our behalf this act of love that has been poured out for our benefit we can accept Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and we can be freed from that life and set on a new course, given new life, given a new destiny, brought into the family of God and promised eternal life. That is the story. Are you thankful for the gospel today? Because that's what God has done. That is the love of God on display for you and for me. And we didn't deserve that. You know what I'm saying? It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. That is a picture but a glimpse at the love of God. Now, if you look at verse 16, it's on the screen there. 
This is where we sort of pivot and do a little transition here. It says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Do you believe God loves you today? Yes. So we have come to know it and believe it. We've explored it here in the scriptures, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That word abides is, is sort of our key word in this series. Abiding with Christ, that's the essence of the life God has for us. It's getting with Jesus. This is what abiding is. You get with Jesus, you stay with Jesus, you walk with Jesus, you fix your eyes on Jesus, you trust Jesus, you follow Jesus, you love Jesus, you serve Jesus, you worship Jesus. You have a relationship with Jesus. That's abiding. That's the life God has for us. The question is, are you abiding in Christ today? And what it says, look at the trajectory of that verse 16. We've come to know and understand and believe the love God has for us. And once we get it, the very next thing is abiding. So the love of God does something in us. It's so powerful. It stirs something in us and it causes us to want to abide in him. It causes us to want to dive in with both feet. When you start to understand the love of God in your life, it changes things. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you start to grasp that love, it makes you want to just run after him in return and abide with him. So that's the trajectory of our lives. We get onto the program of his love and we start abiding with him. And when we abide in Christ, when we have a relationship with Christ and walk with Christ and worship and serve Christ, things happen. Stuff goes on. And what we're going to see in the rest of our text today is a series of five things that happens when we abide in Christ. Again, I'll just remind you of the trajectory. We start to understand the love God has for us. It makes us go, yes, Lord, I'm in. I'm going for it. I want to abide with you. And when we abide in him, a bunch of things happen. We see five of them in our text here. The first one is this. The Spirit strengthens us. The Spirit strengthens us. Verse 13 says, by this, I told you we'd be jumping around. By this we know that we abide, there it is, in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. We have talked a few times uh, on a high level about the Holy Spirit. Here's the high level crash course on the Holy Spirit once again. He's God. God exists in three parts, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us as Christians. So when you come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to us. And this is the presence and the power of God living in us and with us and through us all the time, 24-7, 365. That's good news because the Holy Spirit is also our helper. He's our advocate. He is the one that guides us into all truth. He helps us walk the life that God has for us, and he strengthens us in doing that. The Holy Spirit empowers us in our abiding in Christ because abiding is a whole life. Like it's not just, you know, I do this in my prayer closet first thing in the morning and then I don't abide anymore. It's the life. It's, it's the, the essence, the summation of this life is abiding in Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. I want to use a metaphor. And you have to be careful when you use metaphors about God because mostly they fall flat and they don't say nearly enough. But the Holy Spirit in some ways is sort of like a battery that powers your walk because the life we are called to is not to be done solely on our own strength. Because our strength is not enough. 
I don't care how strong you think you are. You're not that strong. You might be stronger than me, but set the bar a little higher, just saying. No, but this life, I mean, for real, this life gets really difficult. And sometimes following Jesus and abiding with Jesus causes some difficulty because we're at odds with the world. Sometimes we might come into persecution. Sometimes we might come into the attacks of Satan. Sometimes our circumstances might just pile up and you get overwhelmed. Sometimes you just don't feel you just don't feel it. I, I don't feel like I'm right on with the Lord today. I don't really feel like abiding in him. I don't really feel like showing love to other people. In our own strength, like if we, if we only try to abide in Christ on our own power, and I mean, we need to try. We need to try. We need to put in the effort. But if it's only on our own strength, our own effort, you know what happens? More than likely, right over the cliff. Because your strength is not enough to carry you through your whole life and abide with Christ your whole life. But luckily, we have the Holy Spirit. He has given us of his spirit. The Holy Spirit working in us and through us is the one who empowers us to a life of walking, a whole life, a whole life, years and years potentially of walking with Jesus. It's done in his strength. So yes, we have to try, but I think it's a little bit freeing to know it's not all about your effort. It's not all about what I'm doing and what I'm putting into it. The Holy Spirit carries you about. Is that good news so far? Does that work for everybody? So that's good. Number two then, when we abide in Christ, our lives become a testimony. Somebody say testimony. That's more like it. It's great. Okay, verse 14 of our text says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That word testify, I mean, there's, there's a lot behind that word, and a lot of just mental pictures come with that. You know what it is, though, that word testify? You know what that tells me? Your faith is not just something you believe internally, and that's it. Your faith is not just a private internal matter. It's also a public external matter because you're supposed to testify to something testify that the father has sent his son and verse 15 goes right along with that it says whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God we talked about confessing a few weeks ago as well to confess something is just to bring it forward it's to acknowledge it bring it into the foreground into the, into the light into the forefront of your life we're to confess Jesus we're to bring Jesus into the foreground of our life we're to acknowledge that he is Lord, acknowledge that we belong to him. That's testifying. In your life, you're testifying to something. I don't care who you are, where your walk is at with the Lord, you are testifying to something. The question is, who or what are you testifying to? With the way that you live, with the things that you do, the thoughts that you think, the words that you say, what are you testifying about? What are you proclaiming? If people looked at you, who or what would they say is number one in your life? Because you testify to something. Your life is a proclamation. And we're to confess Jesus. So the answer here then is we get abiding with Christ. You get with Jesus. You walk in relationship with him. And see what happens to your testimony when you do that. See what happens. Because something just mysteriously happens in us. When you get close to Jesus, you change. Stuff changes in your life. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in some of your guys' lives. 
When you got with the Lord, something just, a switch just flicked in you. And over time, it starts to show through. It's like a permanent marker on a thin sheet of paper. You mark it down, and at first it might not seem like anything, but that bleeds right through the page. Testify. When you abide with Christ, your life grows in its testimony. And I just take the Lord at his word for that. I just believe that that's true because I've seen it time and time again. So when we abide with Christ, uh, we testify. Number three, this one's a biggie. When we abide with Christ, we love each other. Here it is yet again. It's almost like the Lord's trying to tell us something, right? Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. When we get onto the program of God's love and we start to walk with him in that, that's got to spill over onto others. And verse 11 says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, when talking about loving one another, absolutely all people are, are in that scope. We're to love all people out there, at your job, people that you run into here and there, people that you're, I don't know, oh my word, the thought that just came to my mind was people that you bowl with. Does anybody even bowl anymore? That's a great question. Can you even bowl during COVID? I don't know. Someone can talk to me later about that. Anyway, yes, we'll show love to everybody. Anybody we meet, we want to show them the love of Christ. However, the prime, primary demographic that's in view when this tells us to love one another, it's talking about other Christians specifically, primarily, other Christians. We ought to show love to one another in the church, in the household of faith. Capiche? Because God is love, and God, that love comes from God, and it comes to us. And we're not supposed to be a reservoir of God's love, just keeping it all to ourselves. It's supposed to flow through us like a river onto others. That's the way it works. And this agape love is something that we are to demonstrate to one another. Again, not just a feeling, not just a thought, not just something up here. It's something we show. That pure, selfless, sacrificial love that genuinely wants other people to have good, that's what we're to show to one another. And when we do, we're not just promoting a healthier church culture, which we would be. That would make church, not just our church, the church in general, that would greatly enhance the church if we all loved one another. We're not just increasing our testimony to the outside world, right? Which we would be. They will know you're Christians by your love. We're not just, we're not just cultivating a more pleasant environment. Yeah, I like coming to church because people are nice to me. All that's true, but ultimately when we love each other, we point to the Lord because he is love. And when we show love, it brings him glory. It's a reflection of his character. That's why this is so important. Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God, right? Like with our eyes, there he goes. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Whoever loves one another, God abides in them. You know what that says? Your abiding in Christ is directly correlated to the way that you love other people in the church. Some people have the, oh, it's just me and Jesus. We, it's just me and Jesus. You know, I, we, we, I just crank the worship music in my car. It's just me and Jesus. I go into the woods, me and Jesus, that's it. No, it's Jesus, others, and you. That's the life. That's the love. That's what we're called to. And it says here that when we do this, his love is perfected in us. That doesn't mean there's something wrong or lacking with his love. That means our experience and our understanding of his love grows in us. 
And that's good because when we start to love one another, again, that's tied right in with our walk. When we start to love one another, we start to experience and understand the love of God even more deeply. That's good, right? Right? Okay. All right. But here's the warning. Look at this. It flips over. Verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He's a liar. He's wrong. He's lying. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Just for a minute, on the love and the hate thing, this doesn't mean that all you need to do is withhold hate from somebody. I happen to not hate you. No, this says if you don't go on the offensive and show love, you're lying. There's something wrong there. Because whoever does not love his brother whom he has seen, if you can't love the people right here in the church, right in front of you, what does that say about God? How does it follow that we have this great thing with the Lord if we can't even love one another? And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I think the point on this part is pretty clear. Love for God is supposed to lead to other people. So here's the question then. How are we doing with that? So it's a bit of a public service announcement time, okay? This is the specific area. I mean, the Lord is doing all kinds of things in our church, and the Lord wants us to you know, grow in all kinds of areas. But this is the part where the Lord is pressing in on. You know when you like press in on a bruise? Well, it's, it's like that, but better. The Lord is really pressing in on this area of loving one another in the church. It, it, we've come to it in this, his word a number of times. We've had opportunities to do this. This is what he is calling us to do in this season. Like this is like right at the top of the list. Love one another. Stephanie said it earlier. We gotta fight for community in this season. We gotta go for it in our relationships with one another, in the things that we do to show love for one another. It's been six weeks, I'll tell you, Six weeks since this concept of love one another came up in this series. Six weeks. And in some ways, six weeks is not like a tremendous amount of time. But in other ways, six weeks is more than enough time to start walking in this. So what have we done? I'm talking to myself too. What have I done in the last six weeks to get onto the program of the Lord and get into his will and do what he wants me to do? And we're trying to make space for this as a church. Like we'd opened the cafe back up. We're encouraging people to stick around, whatever. We've done these Thursday night hangouts. Congrats to those of you who found the money this week. Just saying, a little twinge of jealousy, a good kind. I don't know. No, we're trying to make space for this as a church. But it's got to go beyond just that. This has got to be something that you and I do in our everyday lives. Not just when there's some church-sanctioned event going on. And I understand that the easy thing to do is to not do this. I understand that maybe you're going through something or you have these circumstances or you're stressed out or you're overwhelmed or you're busy, whatever it is. I understand the easy thing to do, and I smile because I've done this. The easy thing to do is to come home after a long day, maybe at work, at whatever, and pull the curtain shut and put on the sweatpants, am I talking to anybody so far, and you get out the Lay's chips, and you sit on the couch under a blanket, and you watch Netflix all night, okay? That ministered to somebody. That's the easy thing to do. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes I think we would all do well to recharge our batteries that way a little bit. But that kind of attitude can't be our default and our constant. 
because we're to love one another. And if you are in your own little bubble, curled up under the blanket, whatever, curtains are closed, and you've just cut yourself off from the outside world, how are you going to show someone else love if you're in your own little bubble? Which, anyway, I won't go there with the COVID stuff. But there are needs, there are opportunities in our church right now to show one another love. Like, I don't know, we have senior citizens who are stuck at home and can't get out or can't get out much. Like, have you called them? I like the honesty. <laughs> there are people who we all know, and you've got them on Facebook, or you've got their phone number. Get out your phone and just text them. Encourage them. Send them a message. Write them a letter. That's cool. We have people who have gone through, like in the last six weeks, we have people that have gone through surgeries, and operations. We've had people who have moved in the last six weeks. Have we taken those opportunities to step in and serve them, encourage them, pray for them, make a meal for them, lift a box for them, whatever? Like, don't get so caught up in this is some, like, this is a spiritual thing, but it's so simple and practical. What are you doing and what are you going to do to show love to one another in the body of Christ? because God is putting it right out to us. The question is, are we going to obey him or not? Are we going to do what he's asking us to do or not? He's not letting us off the hook with this one. This keeps coming up. And by the way, this sounds like I'm nagging on you or whatever. Some of you guys have been doing this. Some of you guys are getting this, and it's super encouraging. But we all need to get onto this program. We've all got to get onto the love one another thing. If we're going to move forward as a church, if we're going to be in the will of God, if we're going to fight for community, that's what we got to do. We all clear on that? Is that one good? All right. Well, then let's move on then. Number four, when we abide in Christ, this one's going to help somebody today. When we abide in Christ, fear has to go. Somebody say fear has to go. It's got to go. 1 John 4, 18. This is a really good verse. Just saying. Remember this one. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we see the word of the Lord on that one, and yet we are in the middle of a fear epidemic. No, we are in our day, in our culture, in our city, sometimes in our churches. Fear epidemic. It runs wild. People are living and walking in fear, anxiety is super high, people are stressed out and worried and fearful over a whole bunch of different things. That's just, that's just the way it is. And I say this not to condemn or shame anybody that might be in that, that, that circumstance. I just want you to know, though, I want the record to state that the life God has for you does not include fear. If maybe you're like so mired in it and you don't even know what it's like to not be afraid anymore, like I want you to know God is good and the life he has for you is a life that's past fear. It's beyond fear. It doesn't include or involve fear. So let's talk about fear a little bit then. First thing I'll say about fear, there is one single, solitary, good kind of fear. Only one. In the whole world, in your whole life, there's one kind of good fear and it's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something we see all through the scriptures. Fear the Lord, fear the Lord, walk, walk in that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the start of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is good. 
The fear of the Lord does not mean we're afraid of the Lord, like we're, you know, cowering, like he's about ready to unload on us or something. That's not what fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord, rather, is a respect for God. It's a reverence for God. It's a valuing and cherishing and an obedience to God. Fear of the Lord is remembering and recognizing the authority that he has in and over your life. The fear of the Lord is something that helps us keep a good perspective of who God is and of who we are. Because otherwise we'll start to, you know, well up with pride and we start kind of feeling like we're God and we set the rules and we're in authority. Well, the fear of the Lord helps keep that in, in check and in balance. But any other fear, like that fear of the Lord, we got to grow in that, we got to walk in that, all of us. But any other kind of fear has no place in the life that God has for you. When you abide with Christ, fear ought not to be a part of that. And when it says, whoever fears has not been perfected in love, you know what that's saying? There's an opportunity for you to abide more deeply. There's an opportunity for growth and more trust there. God has more for you. So seek him. Get on, get on to his program with that. What else does it say? Fear has to do with punishment. How many of you, by show of hands, hate punishment? Okay, some of you don't. That's weird. Uh, but we voted by committee, and we've all decided we don't like punishment. So... There you go. Yes, we hate punishment. We, we resist punishment. We bristle at the notion of punishment. Sometimes, I was going to say as kids, maybe as adults, you did something that deserved punishment and you tried to like elude and escape and avoid it, even though you deserved it. We don't like punishment. Well, fear has to do with punishment. And I want you to know something today. God does not punish us as Christians. True or false, God is our heavenly father. True or false, he's a good father. True or false, we are fully his children as Christians. True or false, God loves his children. Okay, you passed the test with flying colors. The, all of that is true. And one thing that God will never do to his children, to Christians, is punish. God will certainly correct and discipline certain things in us, but he never punishes. There's a difference between the two. Correction and discipline, that's an effort from God to lovingly steer us onto a better path. We chose this path, there's a better path, and, and correction and discipline get us onto that path. Punishment exists to condemn somebody and to make them pay for something. See the difference there? Loving correction builds up, punishment beats down. And God does not punish Christians. Do you want to know why? Because he doesn't have to. Because on the cross, Jesus took on our punishment. Jesus on the cross took on the full weight of the things that we had done, the things that rightly deserved to be punished, our sin. Well, Jesus endured that. He drank the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. And so that's been fully poured out on him. And you remember what Jesus said on the cross? He said, it is finished. So for us as Christians, the wrath of God is finished. It's already done. And so God, since he's already punished Jesus, doesn't need to punish us. Yeah, you might be under the hand of correction of God, of discipline from God, but you will never as a Christian be under the punishment of God. So that's good news. What else? Fear... Fear takes reality 
and it turns into speculation. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Another way to say that is fear makes reality not reality anymore. It deceives us because what we start to do when we live in fear and when we walk in fear is we start to look out and we say, that thing coming down the pipe, this might happen. That person might hate me. I might run out of money. I might lose my job. I might, I might, I might, and we freak out over it. Here's the problem. Yeah, it might happen. It also might not. And we have this way of going to the worst case scenario in our minds. And sometimes bad things happen. Sure. But sometimes they don't. And when we look way out and start fearing about things that might or might not happen, that affects our ability to live right in the here and the now. What does God have for me right now? What is God saying to me right in this moment? What does God want me to do right now? You can't see that nearly as clearly if you're worried and freaking out over something that might happen in the future, even if the future is five minutes from now. That hampers our ability to live the life that God has for us. Ultimately, fear makes us worry about things that we really can't control anyway. I don't know how much control you think you have over your life. It's less than you think. And this life that God calls us to is not a life of worrying over the things that we can't control. It's a life of trusting in the one who is in control. God is sovereign. That means he's over all things. Nothing will ever, ever, ever happen to you that is a surprise to God. Nothing will ever happen to you that does not either come from the hand of God or pass through his hand. No one ever pulls one over on the Lord or sneaks one by him. Oh, how'd that happen? God is sovereign over it all. And he is in control. And he's also good, which we've gone on and on about and we've sung about today. Here's the thing though. When we fear, we put all that into question. We say, God, I don't know if you are good. I don't know if you do love me. I don't know if you are able. I don't know if you are sovereign. I don't know if you are over this situation. I don't know if you can help me. And hear the word of the Lord today. You know what God says? He says, is my arm too short that I cannot save? God says, when have I ever failed you? When have I ever let you down? When have I ever not shown up in your situation? When have I ever not been faithful? There's no place for fear in this life that God has for us. Now, there's an answer to our fear. And luckily... The answer is not you try really hard, dig in your heels, close your eyes, and just try really hard not to be afraid. How many of you know that doesn't work so well? The answer is right here. Perfect love casts out fear. Somebody tell me, where does perfect love come from? So the answer to our fear, quite literally, I'm not patronizing you in any degree, the answer to our fear, quite literally, is to run to Jesus. Because he is love, and perfect love casts out fear. That's why it tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all our anxieties on him, because he cares for us. He loves you. He is for you. He is in your corner, on your side. And when Jesus' love comes rushing into the scene, it doesn't just commingle with our fear. It doesn't just slightly dilute and water down our fear. It casts it out. There's no place for that. That sucker's got to go. Because 
His love and his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness and his power and his glory is so much stronger than fear. So when you walk with Jesus and abide with Jesus and seek the Lord Jesus, you, you might still struggle with this on occasion. But when you really get with Jesus, and some of you can testify to this, his love casts out our fear because he is love. That's our Jesus. Is that helpful to anybody today? Is that good news for anybody today? His love casts out fear? Good. Okay, we gotta wrap up then. We got one more to go. When we abide with Christ, ultimately it's an exercise of us keeping our eyes on Jesus. It's not just oh, I looked at you, Jesus, for a minute and then I got distracted and looked away. Ultimately, when we, when we walk with him and abide with him, we keep our eyes fixed on him. It says in verse 17, the last verse we haven't read yet, by this is love perfected with us. In all these things that we talked about, his love can be perfected in us. We can be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. We can be strengthened to not fear. We can be strengthened in our testimony. We can be strengthened to love one another. By all this, his love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. That last bit, as he is, that's Jesus, so also are we. It's ultimately all about Jesus is what that's saying. Whatever Jesus is like, that's what we ought to strive to be like. Whatever Jesus says, that ought to be our priority to do. Whatever his will and his heart is, that should be ours as well and our desire to do that. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. We, we summed that up uh, a couple of weeks ago by saying it this way. Life is ultimately about coming to Jesus, walking with Jesus, and becoming more like Jesus. That's the trajectory we're put on as Christians. And in all of that, it says that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Jesus is coming back. He's gone away for a while. He's in heaven. He's doing great. He's coming back again. And if you don't know Jesus, whether you're here today or maybe you're listening later on, if you don't know Jesus, I just have to tell you, you are not positioned well for that day. On that day, Jesus will return in power and in glory. And he will come to bring this age to a close. And it will be a day of judgment. And on that day, you will see him as he truly is. And you will realize and you will recognize that you're offside with him. And the result of that is, like I said, judgment and condemnation. But for those of us who do know Jesus, which is most of us here today, we can have confidence. That's such a good word, confidence. As that day approaches, we can walk in confidence. When that day arrives, we can live that day in confidence because we know that we belong to him. And we know that on the day that the Lord Jesus returns in power and in glory, and ushers in his kingdom fully, we will get to be a part of that. We will get to go and be with him forever. What a day that will be. Not only can we have confidence on that day, we can have confidence as we work forward now toward that day. Because we know who ultimately wins. We know what it's gonna be like. 
We know who overcomes, and we know what will become of us who belong to him who overcomes. That changes the way we live. And when we abide in Christ, this truth is instilled in us. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it keeps us in that path of confidence, and we don't have to sink into despair. How's this all landing? You guys doing okay? All right. We're going to wrap up then, and we're going to have a chance to abide with him right now.